Hello, and welcome to this very first edition of the Job Hunter podcast. I'm your host, Tim French, and over the course of this series, I will whisk you away to the Virtual Careers Fair, allowing you the opportunity to find out more about some of Britain's most interesting careers. This week, we are talking all things medical. I was lucky enough to catch up over Zoom with two young junior doctors to discuss some highs and lows of their profession. We had a really good chat about what it takes to be a medic, as well as hearing some funny stories that will make you realise we all have our good days and bad days. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, grab a cuppa and cue the music. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome my guests today to the Job Hunter podcast, Matt Bradley and Tom McCain. Uh, obviously, this is the first episode of the Job Hunter podcast. Uh, and as the title alludes to today, this week, we are looking at what it takes to become a junior doctor. The hours of hard work and studying, the endless night shifts and everything in between. So firstly, how are you two doing today? What you, what you guys been up to? Good evening, Timmy. Yeah, not too bad at the moment. Uh, just had some nice news about the COVID vaccine, so a little bit of positivity, a bit of optimism for us today. Um, I'm currently an F2, I'm Matt, um, I'm currently on a GP rotation, basically. So what does that, lead, what does that, does that mean um, on a rotation, if, we, if we're going to get technical for a little bit? Um, so, well, Tom and I are both on our second year of foundation, doctors basically so for, for, for two years you have a training program where you rotate around a different job every four months essentially so you're on you're on gp at the moment tom what are you doing at the moment hi yeah uh, timmy i'm all right uh, i am doing a and e at the moment um so yeah i'm been trying to sleep today before my night shift this evening so. <laughs> going well for you or is it are you struggling uh, the first night is always is always a challenge. Yeah. Away all day, a lot of FIFA, but you know. So, did you guys always want to be doctors? Is it something you've always kind of thought you would get into, or was like what was the process that got you to being doctors? To be honest, um, do you want to go first? <laughs> go first, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think um, it, it's difficult because it's something that. You don't have to choose early, but uh, it is a lot easier. And obviously, if you do it like both of us did it straight out of school, you do have to have basically decided by the time you're about 16, which is way earlier than anything else. Um, as to why, I'm not really sure. Like, There's loads of uh, med school answers that everyone gives. I mean, everyone has to answer that in their interview. But I think uh, mine, it was probably more seeing uh, my dad and seeing all that my family's friends and it seemed like a pretty fun life and fairly interesting so how's that working out <laughs> well yeah it's pretty interesting and generally i think yeah a lot of good people you meet so not going too badly too far yeah for me it was pretty much pretty much similar so we like Mac kind of alluded to we both came straight out of school we've obviously all been to school together and you kind of essentially pick your GCSEs based on the stuff you're enjoying at the time so we were mostly people who are interested in science 
I know both of us were, and then you kind of lead you onto your A levels where you start focusing down onto, you know, scientific A levels and then starting to think about what you might do at uni really. Um, and you kind of end up on that path almost without realizing it a little bit. And then, you know, you were at a school where there's a lot of medical students that come out of it. It's just kind of a well-trodden path. We had great teachers that helped us out in terms of applications and stuff. And then you kind of end up, <laughs> end up there and just have to pass your exams essentially. <laughs> I mean, it sounds it sounds like you guys kind of always knew. Like um, to me, it seems really interesting that, that you, you kind of took took a lot from your what your family was doing and obviously what what your school was doing. But kind of what would be the the one bit of advice you'd give someone who say is sixteen and, and thinking about a career in medicine um, if if they were thinking about it? I'd say obviously you have to be interested in science stuff really because that forms a lot of the basis of what you do at med school to begin with anyway I know Macca's was probably a lot more scientific than mine was um, but just follow the, follow the subjects you enjoy at that point really um, and you, you know there's a kind of a combination of subjects that seem to kind of work pretty well for ending up at med school but it's, it's not just one you know because you can do loads of stuff but I, I, I don't think you have to really know by the time you're 14, 15 it's just you know a kind of combination of subjects and then being pretty good with people really is the other one I'd, I'd say really yeah. I think the other thing is that like Mad said our school and you know family and people we knew made it pretty easy but actually for other people it's a lot more difficult uh, kind of getting experience doing all those sorts of things uh, and also like the idea isn't as much in your head um, but uh, yeah, definitely say the way that we did it in terms of straight from school is just not the only way to do medicine. Like there's so many people who do it after a first degree and there are other kind of things at the moment, um, like physicians associates and stuff as well, which are, there's so many other things to do medicine as opposed to just doing it straight from school. Definitely. 100%. So, so I mean, that, that's really interesting that you, you kind of mentioned that there's so many different pathways. Um, obviously, what in terms of when you get to university, what's in, what does it entail? Do you have to do sets and exams and practical and whatever um, to get there? And, and is there any other options you've got um, out there than, than doing this, the, the, the typical medical school route? Um, well, well, yeah. Go on, Mike. You, you want to go, Macca? Well, yeah, I mean, the application for all the medical schools, like each of them require different tests or maybe just an interview. Uh, and that's changing all the time, basically. And they're even announcing loads more medical schools at the moment. I think this year there's loads of new ones. Um, but also you basically were saying about doing it in a different way. So you can do uh, graduate medicine. So you can just do any kind of scientific degree, uh, three years. And then there are quite a few universities that do a kind of shorter medical course after that. So that's a good thing to do for people who maybe don't have the A-levels or maybe don't uh, know what they want to do straight away. I was just going to say, I'd add on to that for people, as well as we were mentioning, people that have done postgraduate med, like medicine, for say once they've done a previous undergraduate degree and they moved in, they often make really good students as well as junior doctors as well, because they kind of got got their stuff together a lot more than 18 year olds in medical school have. They kind of know what they're, you know, they know how to learn at uni. They know how to get by in terms of just a bit more adult life. Um, and have often got quite a lot to offer in terms of that. So yeah, it's definitely not just one way of going about it really. Yeah. 
So, I mean, if, if we're talking about being a doctor, what is the, the progression, would you say? Well, what is the progression from being a junior doctor? You said you're an F2, so I guess that means you're in your second year of being a junior doctor. Um, but when does that stop? When do you stop being a junior and start being a senior? And, and what's the typical <laughs> time frame that you get given to do all these things? And what does it mean? So there's been, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about what junior doctors mean over like this year particularly with all the COVID stuff and also previous years in terms of contracts, really. And it's kind of a misnomer, really, because junior doctors kind of technically means anything up to and including a registrar, which is basically anything that isn't a consultant, which is kind of your, you know, your highest level of uh, specialist doctor, basically. Um, so a kind of basic way is really that you have two years of foundation training where you kind of rotate around those jobs, like I mentioned. Then there's a kind of natural gap or you can go straight into more specialist training, where which can last really any any amount of time between three years for being to for going to a GP, or you know, eight years, nine years onwards for being neurosurgeons or you know different different subspecialties. Really, brilliant. Um, so, Tom, if you had to describe to me what your typical day would like, you're saying you're about to go into a night shift, so 10 o'clock to 8, which I imagine is a bit of a graveyard shift. What, what does that really consist of? What, 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 if you were going to give people a bit of an insight into your day-to-day job, what would it look like? Well, I mean, it changes depending on what rotation you're on, like, like we were just saying earlier, but um, for A&E at the moment, it is literally anyone who walks in the door. Um, and you just obviously have to, well, supposedly work out what's going wrong with them, work out if they need to be in hospital uh, and try and help treat them, I guess. But it's very varied, whereas there are so many different kind of things you can do as a junior doctor. I mean, GP, Matt, I'll probably say that it'd be more kind of routine stuff. And then you're working in the hospital on wards, it would be covering all the inpatients for a certain and uh, kind of speciality of medicine or maybe a surgical thing you might be going into theatre uh, so I mean there's so many different things that you could be doing but yeah A&E is difficult to describe but it's basically just seeing new patients all the time and trying to work out where they need to go essentially so, so is there a lot of um, is there a lot of like stabbing people in the chest with adrenaline and using defibrillators and have you got house MD running around in the background telling you that you're doing it all wrong or is it is it a lot more mundane? Uh, it's usually quite a bit more mundane, I would say. But I mean that there is that people uh, do need and especially in any there are people who need the extremes of medical care and like the hospital that I work at is a trauma centre, so. Again, you can see people who are at the extremes of life or the most unwell. Uh, but most people, especially as a junior doctor, most people you see might be unwell, but you know it's not that exciting. It takes a long time uh, to work out what's going on and also a long time to make them feel better. If someone comes in on the trauma call, Maka, how, how, how is it set up and how much, what are you kind of contributing in that? Uh, well, as F2, SHO, probably not that much. Uh, it depends, <laughs> though. Uh, so there'll be a leader, there'll be a surgeon there, there'll be, well, there'll be two sets of surgeons there, three nurses, and depending on how severe it is, then there'll be consultants there as well, radiologists, radiographers. So, I mean, that is the, I mean, that is kind of so different to the rest of medicine. It is almost like a kind of well-oiled machine, like the ones that I've seen that have gone well. 
they are basically arriving at any and within 15 minutes they you know they know exactly what's wrong with them and they've gone to theatre to fix it. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's more interesting for us just to kind of watch it at the moment. You don't get yeah. to do that much <laughs> yeah. for those sorts of things. But So would you say your experience differs, Matt? Um, you said you're GP, <laughs> GP at the moment, aren't you? <laughs> at the moment, I think it's about as different as you can possibly imagine. Um, particularly at the moment, what we're in November. Um, kind of just coming with the second wave of COVID. So GPs aren't really seeing many patients face to face, you know, there's no classic interaction or consultations really that you'd, we've all grown up knowing as primary care has been delivered for however long. It's all telephone consultations really, which come to, comes with their own difficulties really. Obviously you've got to try and work out if someone's sick enough, they need to go to hospital whilst on the phone, which can sometimes be difficult trying to get, I don't know, 80 year olds, um, people onto video calls is an absolute disaster. That's always a tricky one. Um, it's, it's, it comes with its own, own issues, basically. Um, it's a little bit isolating at the moment, I'd say, if I'm going to be honest. You know, there's no kind of team interactions around the, the, the practice. Um, it's, it's, just, it's tricky. Uh, it's, 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 not, it's, it's not all uh, 100 miles an hour like Mac is flying around A&E on a trauma call. I'm not going to lie, it's pretty... It's, it's, it's pretty slow, um, but you do get to speak to people for quite, you know, for a little bit longer probably. Um, and, I've, you know, even in the three months we've been in, I've already seen the same people maybe three or four times. So you do get, you get to know them, even if it's just over the phone. Do you ever wish there was, that those patients would potentially not ring up anymore? There's those times that they call because they're, they're hypochondriacs and they're worried <laughs> so much about... <laughs> That was um, something that's nothing at the end, ultimately. So yeah, I mean, there's a good proportion of worried. Well, I'm not going to lie, but um, you know, they've all got a reason that they want to call up. So you do have to take it all seriously. And even if it's someone that's called up a million times before, and it's not been anything particularly important, you know, those they, those people can still get can still get ill, can't they? So you've got to kind of take take everything as it you know as if it was very serious. But obviously, sometimes you are knocking your head against the desk at the same time. I mean, obviously, we're on the subject of your day-to-day -day work. Have you guys got any kind of funny stories that you can allude to or elaborate on uh, from your time, either as, as uh, junior doctors or as when you're medical students? Have you been interesting to hear? You got any record? Um, yeah, I have to. I have to think. I don't know. I mean, A and E is is a bit mental, especially night shifts. Can you know? And it, you just have no idea what's going to come through and it could be anything. And the amount of, uh, yeah, drunk, intoxicated people, but also just, I mean, in literally anything. I think literally the last set of nights um, I was on, I was just sat in the kind of main bit of A&E, a police officer kind of wanders in uh, and he's like, uh, guys, uh, the bloke outside who's running around, uh, White Chapel High Street uh, with no trousers on. That anything to do with you? <laughs> and it just had to go, uh, not really sure. And it turned out there'd actually been two people who were literally running around the street outside with no trousers on, uh, proclaiming to be, um, you know, all sorts of powerful individuals, which was pretty interesting. So then they get brought in. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, A&E is just just anything comes in so it's difficult trying to think of things but yeah well, I don't know what, how much you want to hear Frenchie and how, how much we're allowed to say on here but um, there was always a few in med school which were pretty funny 
Um, I remember on a, one of my first placements in third year in medical school. So that's when you just, you know, you kind of go out of the lecture theatres, go out of the classrooms a little bit. Um, and you start going into hospitals, you know, you, I don't really have any responsibility. But I remember being unbelievably hungover, essentially. Um, and one of the doctors that we were shadowing, we weren't doing anything clinical myself. I remember we were going to get some small group teaching off a, um, off a, uh, one of the consultants. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure he clocked immediately that me and my mate weren't feeling too great. And so he kind of, he was like, oh guys, I'll come get you in a minute. I'll come get you in five minutes and do some teaching. And he went in and he <laughs> did a PR examination on a patient basically, which is a kind of an examination of a patient's back passage essentially to check, you know, if they've got any mass or I think they were bleeding um, when he went to the toilet and he comes out and he, <laughs> he hasn't washed his eyes, he hasn't changed his gloves and he just starts giving us this teaching session, <laughs> waggling his finger well close to me and my mate. And I'm not kidding. I think he was just relishing in that how much how much he knew we were just feeling so very sick at that point. It was it was honestly it was dreadful. It was you'll have more sympathy for any poor student uh, student uh, medics I mean, getting your, in your Having said that, though, we had some third year medical students with us um, last year's time last year, and obviously they end up revising for exams. So often they have quite good knowledge about really specific things. And I was on the on an endocrine ward. And these third-year medical students knew knew a whole lot more than I did. It was quite embarrassing, to be honest. That's right. I used to make them look, you know, make you look good. Because yeah, yeah, I just offer them the floor. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> so, so, you know, this is probably going to be quite a hard question, but but what exactly makes you get out, get out of bed every day? What what about this job? Do you think makes you get out of bed? Well. Hmm. that's a good question <laughs> I don't know I think it's difficult at the moment for both of us because when you're rotating you're not doing the job that you want to do mm-hmm. and for a lot of being a junior doctor you are basically working towards and I'm sure it's the same for you know loads of professions but like you're working towards a career when you are the specialist in exactly what you want to do yeah. whereas at the moment you are just you know, you're supposedly being trained and you're hopefully learning things and like it can still be fun, but you are sometimes going to have to work uh, in departments or in parts of medicine that you just, you don't particularly want to do. So you've got to be kind of quite long-term focused, I think, because it can be pretty difficult when you have loads of night shifts or lots of difficult uh, or boring work. You, you do need to have a kind of long or be quite good at looking in the long term, I think, yeah. to enjoy it. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, you know when, um, you know when you're at school at the end of term, like it's coming up to Christmas, and you kind of you've clocked off, and no one's doing any work for like two weeks before Christmas holidays, and you're just watching films and you're not really paying attention. Sometimes, if like if you don't really keep a bit focused, if you're in a job that you're not particularly enjoying, or um, you know, you know that you're not going to be doing for the rest of your life. Basically, it's quite easy just to switch off a little bit. Um, so you do have to, like you say, you do have to kind of keep focus on the long term a little bit. Keep keep in mind what you know. There is a re- there are reasons you're doing it, but obviously there are you know good things that come out of any of the jobs as well. Like there are good moments when you know you do you know you might diagnose something on a night shift that you know you're quite impressed with yourself, or um, you know you treat this person and they do get better like kind of over the next few minutes, and you know they might have been quite unwell, and then you kind of keep them better until the slightly more senior doctor can come in like, even these small victories are pretty good sometimes but sometimes they do seem quite few and far between <laughs> to be honest 
And the other thing is you don't often get a huge amount of feedback about on the, on the, it was obviously meant to be structured feedback about stuff like you have portfolios that you meant to complete your, throughout the year, but basically they're essentially tick box exercise, but the kind of the real victories, like I was just mentioning, like no, a lot of the time, no one really tells you if you've done right or wrong on those things. So you do have to be quite introspective and kind of back yourself on these sorts of things sometimes, because no one's going to say, yeah, yeah, that was quality. Well done. <clears throat> so, so if you, you, if you had to think about it, what, what would be your like end goal in your job? What, where do you want to get to? So, so I, I'm, I'm, I'd like to do surgery. I think I want to do orthopedics, but I'm not certain, but I think surgery one way or another. Um, so, you know, you end up kind of focusing a lot of the things you do around that. You have to go on courses, you have to do exams. Um, there's no set time frame in which to do them, but you know, really the better a lot of the time. Um, and then, you know, you kind of throughout your rotations, hopefully you'll have a surge, you know, these, these rotations over these two years, I had a couple of rotations on orthopedics. So that was quite good. And I kind of learned a lot on there. Um, and then, you know, you apply for training, like I was saying earlier, you've got this, you've got surgical training and then more and more specialist training after that. And eventually, yeah, like I said, you end up kind of aiming to be a consultant, a, a consultant in a particular specialty, really. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah. I don't think I'm as, as decided as Matt, but I don't know, probably, uh, not surgery, so medicine, <laughs> which always makes people, it's always difficult to explain to people because if people think, oh, being a doctor, it's all medicine. But I think when uh, they basically mean hospital medicine, so specialists, so cardiologists or lung respiratory doctors, so some sort of medical specialty but at the moment, undecided. And I think that's quite common. It's, it's really difficult to decide when yeah. you don't do it all the time. And you the the thing about the foundation rotations, it's essentially a job lottery. And if you don't kind of land on something that you really, really like, you know, it's, it can seem pretty bleak and hard to work out what you want to do. And, you know, some people come out of med school thinking they know exactly what they want to do. And some people haven't got a, haven't got a scuba basically. So everyone finds these things at different times, but essentially it's only in the last few months that I've kind of really come around to what I think I want to do as well. So, they, you know, they don't come overnight basically. So, so if you, what, do you guys kind of do as a coping mechanism for this coping with the pressure of your job, the progression and just day to day, you know, looking after people and, and what that entails, how do you get through that? So I don't know, there's a few different pressures on there. And, and to be honest, like, I think sometimes it gets over eggs. So like, you do have to keep a bit of perspective on it. I don't think I go, I go around all day, every day feeling like the world, you know, the weight of the world on my shoulders basically sometimes you have pressure and you know you get in all walks of life in all jobs pressure of um you know you need to do this portfolio thing you need to get this little bit done to get through to the end of the you know four month block or um you know you need to get go to this conference to get this thing ticked off or there's like the other pressure of care provision essentially and the patients that you have and your responsibilities in terms of them which kind of they come for me anyway, they come kind of short and sharp. You don't really, you know, I don't go around all day thinking, oh my God, like I'm, you know, I'm on this ward and I'm currently responsible for these patients. But if something goes wrong and you do kind of feel very responsible and if someone becomes unwell, that's when you feel a little bit of pressure. And as long as you kind of, you know, 
you're pretty aware of your limitations. If so long as you're asking for help at the right times, there's yeah, a limit of what can go wrong. Really. <laughs> yeah, I think agree with Matthew. There's yeah, there's different pressures. There's the pressures of like a system that is struggling, or in coronavirus, or in any time. I think any 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 uh, winter uh, in the last five years, you can look at it, and the NHS has struggled. So. So trying to kind of work through that and I guess you see in any I'm sure you see in GP as well but any kind of you're pressured to do things quickly because the whole hospital relies on any you know getting people out or getting people in quickly and stuff like that but then I think you have to kind of detach yourself from that because there's nothing you can do about that essentially you know you you just do your job and then in terms of patients yeah sometimes yeah I think you, you have a bit of personal responsibility but like Matt said as long as you are sensible don't do anything you can't do and you know there's, there's a limit to how personally responsible you can feel you know you obviously want to make them better on help them but you can't uh, let it um, overtake your life because then you know it's what you do every day so if you do that every day it's I think, too emotionally draining obviously as you go along like through Kind of, uh, you know, we're only a year and a bit into a, a job that's going to last a long time. Hopefully, um, you kind of accrue these different experiences of, you know, these are quite often difficult experiences. So, you know, the first time you see a patient have a cardiac arrest and you can't do anything about it, or you know, this year with COVID, you know, the first time you deal with a patient with COVID who is getting more and more unwell in front of you, and there's essentially nothing you can really do. And these are the tough experiences, obviously. Um, but you do get to know how to like deal with them. And you take from take from them what you can in terms of what can you do better? What what did you not do particularly well? What did you do well? Like I was saying, often people don't say what you did well. You kind of have to work it out a little bit yourself. Um, and then, yeah, separation from it when you get home, essentially. Like, I'm all right for switching off, to be honest. So... Um, I, I'm not too bad at that, but I'll be, I know some people manage differently to our, to how I do, to be honest. Is there any support for you guys? I, I imagine a large support of your job is just being kind of a shoulder to, to cry on and speak to. What, what support do you guys get as, uh, you know, doctors to, to help cope with other people's problems? I don't know about you, Mac, but it's quite limited, I feel. I don't think there's a huge amount. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's kind of systems that are meant to be in place and there's, um, you know, you have supervisors and you have colleagues and then there are kind of overall people in, in charge of whatever hospital you're at or whatever. Um, but I, I think it depends. I mean, I haven't tried to use the things, but, I, you know, I don't think there's loads from people who have gone to, you know, certain supervisors or whatever, you know, not everyone is trained to be a pastoral advisor either these supervisors who you have and so i think it varies a lot i, I think yeah, there, are like, there are some like practitioners health things i think as nhs as doctors you can get you can like basically special gps and psychiatrists who will see you sooner uh, if you are actually kind of properly unwell or really struggling but yeah luckily haven't had to use that yeah. there are some good like disparate um services for example the bma which is kind of the uh, the british medical association was what kind of our you know support you know support basically provide free counseling for junior doctors and 
medical students I know um, but like Mac was saying we have kind of nominated supervisors kind of within our clinical area so on the ward which is generally a consultant in the area you're working in and also an educational kind of more overarching supervisor who generally they're the only reason you interact you don't have anything clinically to do with them and they're meant to be there in terms of support for you but you know like like Tom was saying they're not all trained in the things they should be able to do and you know if you need those sorts of services if you are really struggling obviously access is essentially the most important thing because people in those sorts of you know crises aren't aren't going to be able to aren't going to want to look around like for hours and end and work out how they get through all this red tape and stuff so there is a limit to the support but also you have to be open yourself like you know whoever you're living with it's important to talk to them and things um and then things within um kind of wards and stuff of the you know like i mentioned earlier with cardiac arrests there's generally a more of a push to have debriefs and things i don't know what you have maca but um i know they're trying to introduce them there's kind of a bit of hit and miss at the moment so that would be where after everyone kind of converges on a cardiac arrest afterwards whether it's gone well or not so well um in theory meant to have these debriefs where you discuss everything that how it's gone and make sure everyone's okay basically but i don't know how uh, successful they've been with you yeah i don't know i mean actually i did i have said been rather negative but actually a and e that i'm doing at the moment is really good i mean there's we have a specific a and e psychologist who's just for the staff uh and every week there's a team time and after any kind of uh like cardiac arrest or any kind of stressful event there probably would be a debrief led by one of the consultants so i think it really depends on the team you're working in and uh, definitely a and e at the moment it has a quite a good team atmosphere i think because probably because there are so many traumatic things and it is quite so yeah, stressful but otherwise it would be yeah that was yeah that was important conversation but it's a little bit heavy so i'm gonna try and bring it up a bit um there must be some perks to this job. I can't. It can't all be doom and gloom. Come on, hit me. What? What? What is the one perk you can think of to being a doctor? Yeah, I'm sorry if we've uh, <laughs> come across negatively in the best column. Um, it is good, man. It has, has it has really good aspects as well. Obviously, um, you know, it's it's nice to be in the paid world of work, which is always a good good thing. Job security is pretty pretty good, um, and and you know. There's pretty bad lows, but there are really good highs as well. You know, if 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 someone's really unwell and you even fix them just a little bit, that's that's you know that's worth a hell of a lot. So uh, the the highs where you wouldn't really expect when they come. If someone can, says, "Oh, you've done pretty well there," it's really nice. So there are good parts to it as well. Yeah, and I mean, I didn't queue for any supermarkets in lockdown, so. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, that's 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 got me sold. It. I mean, if there's ever a reason to be a doctor, it's yeah, it's to jump the queues. Might <laughs> be wrong there. You got to clap every week as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, we did that. Did that really make you feel good? Getting a clap every week. I, I quite enjoyed it to begin with, and then it was it just became quite. I don't know. These things, as they go on, kind of lose the meaning, don't they? And I don't know. I didn't feel like I was doing a huge amount because a lot of the time I didn't have a lot of work to do anyway. So you know, I'm not quite sure if I deserved it. Yeah. Mm, yes. So if you, 
could transport yourself back to being that kind of 16 year old self does your does your expectations match what you expected it to be if that makes sense if if you take your what you know now as being a doctor and and, and apply it to what you thought it would be like when you were 16 did the two match up yeah i don't know about you matt i don't think i've thought about this period no because because this is a very temporary kind of bit uh, and like i said you basically have to look forward you, you don't no one thinks about this period of being a doctor or like even medical school to an extent like you don't think you think about the fun bits of being at uni but you don't think about being in medical school so yeah i guess you just you don't really think about those sorts of things so <clears throat> I, agree. I don't know if it would be that helpful to it, it depends but you basically have to get through it if you want to get to the good stuff yeah. and I think being negative and thinking oh I don't want to be a doctor because being an F1 and F2 is quite hard I think that would be a bit of a shame if that put everyone off it yeah but you yeah you, like, like you said I, I, to be honest I didn't really, even really understand how these, these intermediate kind of years even worked even like two years ago do you know what I mean they go this it's kind of all keeps seems so complex and kind of kind of separate to where you are at the time um, it kind of all just gradually appears as you go through it to be honest so you do some work experience maybe when you're 15 and you you generally spend time with a consultant and that's kind of essentially what you imagine it to be I guess and you don't see a huge amount of the kind of dog's body work that you do when you're in the first couple of years so I agree with Maka really in that in that regard um yeah that's what I'd say really <clears throat> it, I mean it's been absolutely fascinating um if I can ask you one last question to both of you um you know I like to call this podcast the virtual careers fair if you again you could throw yourself back to that 16 year old self you're wandering around the sports hall with all these different stands up with loads of different careers and you at the opposite side of the table this time doing the recruiting, what's the kind of three attributes that you would, would say make up a doctor and, 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 and how would you really give that sales pitch to someone who wants to be a doctor? Uh, I wouldn't pick three specific things. Like there's so many different and it like literally the difference between an orthopedic surgeon and a palliative care consultant, you know, there's so many different careers in medicine that like getting just the same people is just not helpful and not what the NHS needs or the health service needs. Like it just needs loads of different people. And like, you need to have some scientific knowledge and you need to have like varying levels of being good with people. But you, there's, there is so much more than just like one set of person uh, who can be a good doctor or who can be a doctor in any way. And I think that's probably will be realized in terms of like universities and stuff as well. I think it probably is changing. Yeah. Uh, people, from the kind of very strict scientific stuff. Medical school candidates all, all seem to have to, funnel into a certain set of characteristics basically to get through the whole process but like Mac says it's not a particularly helpful helpful way of looking at things because you don't not everyone that becomes a doctor or goes through medical school ends up working in a ward setting there are loads of people in you know labs and GPs and you know all these different kind of setups so it's just it's, it's, it's as far apart as you can imagine to be honest um I'd say being a nice person is always pretty handy, but that's probably a handy thing in life. And to be honest, I probably can't even 
say that about myself a huge amount of the time. <laughs> 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 or some people we've worked with, I'm sure. <laughs> so it's clearly not a prerequisite. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure having both of you on the show today. Um, honestly, I couldn't have thought of a better pair of people to have on for this first episode. Um, if you guys want to give a shout out or anything, uh, feel free to now. Um, but I just want to say a massive thank you for you coming on and, and putting up with me for, for 35 minutes. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much, guys. Yes, Frenchie, it would be an absolute pleasure. No worries, Frenchie. Been a pleasure. So there you have it. Life as a junior doctor. Perhaps not as glamorous as the films make out, but what really came across was the passion that both Tom and Matt share for their jobs. Once again, I'd like to say a massive thank you to them both for coming on and to all our healthcare professionals out on the front line. The NHS truly is a cornerstone of our society, and as you can hear, it's full of some top-class people. I really do hope you've enjoyed listening to this first episode and tune in next Wednesday as I continue my tour of the virtual careers fair. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the Job Hunter podcast wherever you get your fix and leave a review as it helps others to find us. You can also find us on Twitter at Job Hunter Pod, on Facebook at Job Hunter Podcast, where we'll also have a support group for those wanting more information. And finally, you can drop me an email if you want to find out more or perhaps you want to be on the show. It's jobhunterpodcast at gmail.com. I've been Tim French and this has been the Job Hunter Podcast. See you next week. <laughs>